G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. It's the religious world. And do you know why? Because religious people struggle with grace because grace requires unworthiness. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. And in this episode, we begin a new short series exploring the idea of Christian atheism. What does that mean? It doesn't really sound right. But Pastor Jeff will clarify as he explains how there are many of us who talk the talk but don't walk the walk when it comes to our faith. It might be confronting. It might challenge you. But let's get into this message now on Today with Jeff Vines. It is one thing to say in the privacy of your own home or to your family and friends that you are a believer and follower of Jesus. It's another thing entirely to stand and shout it on the mountaintops. And so what we're doing, we're starting a series that I just want to say from the get-go, and I've said this for a long time. We are not waiting on God for revival. God is waiting on us. He has given us the power and the resources essential to spark a wave of revival. And so we're going to do this series together called Christian Atheism. And the concept is this, that there are many people who say they believe in God and follow Jesus. That is easily done. But there are few and far between whose lives actually match and harmonize well with what they say they believe. And so what I want to do just in the beginning, and again, if you're a skeptic here, and this is your first, second, or third time, maybe you, you're new in this whole journey, again, welcome. And I just want you to understand what it is we're about. I know you're on a journey, it might take some time, but understand where we're going here. Because I think every person in the room has to ask themselves three questions to start this series. Three questions that if you can answer appropriately, and if you can't, that you'd make the changes, then somehow all of us can start to have lives that conform well with who we say that we are. Again, it's easy to say you believe in God and that you follow Jesus. It's another thing entirely to live it out. So here's the first question. Number one, am I distracted by affluence? Am I distracted by affluence? Here's what happens in that passage in Acts chapter five, verse 40. The Bible says, after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Now, I don't think that's just a little bit of smacking around back in the dark alley. Flogged is a word by, according to Eusebius, the first century historian, it was called halfway death. So you're beaten half to death, literally. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, 
rejoicing. Now it's amazing, those two words are in the same paragraph. Flogged, beaten, and rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, that they do it, did it, is undeniable. My question has always been, how did they do it? How do you do that? How do you get beaten, probably to an inch of your life, and you walk out giddy? That's what the word rejoicing means. It's like, man, wasn't that cool? I mean, we got to do that. That was great. How exactly does that happen? Now, to answer this question, I want to build an argument here. So it's going to be one of those times where you say, where's Pastor Jeff going with this? But if you will stay, it'll all come out together in the end, okay? And I want to recall your attention to a story I told you back in February, a true story that came out of the Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. After Nelson Mandela had come into power, he decided that the best way to heal South Africa was not retribution, but was reconciliation. And so he set up this reconciliation commission that they would hold court all throughout the land. And here's how it works. If you were a white South African police officer and you were willing to come in and confess the crimes and the sins you'd committed against the family, and you'd have to lay it all on the line now, holding nothing back. If you would confess it all and do what was required, there would be no retribution whatsoever, simply forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a story that circulated, I think, starting back in the mid-90s. An African Akulsa lady walked in. Opposite her in the courtroom, on the stand, is a white South African police officer. She is wanting to know what happened to her husband and her 16-year-old boy. And this white South African police officer looks across the way in a state of seemingly humility and says, Madam, I would like to tell you what happened to your husband and your son. And the way the transcript reads, and you can read it online, he said, Madam, your husband was out in Soweto past curfew. And so we found him and we put him on a skewer over a fire and began to turn him slowly and burn him until he died. And two weeks later, we found your 16-year-old son also out past curfew, and this was a violation, so we put him on a skewer, and we turned him slowly, and he died as your husband died. And we took the remains, and we buried them in a plot. And madam, and according to the transcript, there was genuine sorrow. Madam, I am truly sorry. And the whole courtroom waits. How is she going to respond? After weeping, she raises her head with a voice shaking. She says, I have two requests. He says, yes, madam. Number one, I request that you please take me and show me where you buried my husband and my son so that I can give a proper burial. And very important in South African culture, well, all cultures. What's the second, madam? She wiped the tears from her face and said, I am an old Christian mother. I have a lot of love to give. I want you to come to my house once a week on a Tuesday night and I'm going to cook a meal for you and the love I can no longer give to my son, or my husband, I'm going to give to you. He almost passed out experiencing that kind of grace, literally, as the people who had come with this lady from her church all rose together and began to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, folks, before I go on, who do you need to forgive? Man, 
If you are truly a Christian saved by grace, then forgiveness is going to be a lot easier for you than anybody else. And surely, whatever happened to the phrase, we're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Is it just a statement or do you mean it? That you didn't earn your salvation, it was given to you, it is called unmerited favor. And because God forgave you in heaven's name, who in your family, at your workplace, have you not forgiven? And how can you and I possibly say that we were followers of Jesus Christ while we refuse to forgive an offense? This woman understood it. And by the way, that's not where the story ends. And I owe some credit to a guy by the name of Rob Harley, who is a New Zealand journalist who wrote a book called The Power of the Story. And this is what he told me. Now we know that this lady adopted this police officer into her family. And she said, when she was asked, how were you able to do it? How could you possibly do this? And you know what she said? She said, I knew it was going to come to something like this. So I saturated my mind with the word of God so that when my emotions kicked in, I could, have you heard this before? I could take my emotions by the scruff of the neck and lead them to the truth of the word of God. And I kept memorizing these passages. For if you forgive people of their wrongdoing, God will forgive you as well. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. I just kept saying it over and over, saturating my mind with the word of God about forgiveness and mercy so that when the time came, the Holy Spirit activated the right word at the right time to give me the victory. The early church, folks, they were called people of the way and people of the word. I know we're in the book of Acts and the New Testament wasn't being circulated yet, but they were already memorizing the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder if, I wonder if the people in Acts chapter five facing this persecution that they could rejoice while being flogged were memorizing Matthew chapter five, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the problem. I do not see that in my own life. I don't. Do you? Remember what happened when I went to Rwanda, the third trip and Anastas, my translator said to me, pastor Jeff, this is your third trip to preach in the prisons. We're going to go to a prison. That's not going to be like any other prison. These are people who have orchestrated it and really in charge of planning the genocide. This is going to be different. When we go into the prison, stay on my left side, hold my arm. When we get to the front, you stay by my side. I'll translate for you. So he's telling me this for three hours. And I'm starting to think I have a wife and a, and a child and a church who possibly cannot do without me. And, <laughs> and finally, just before we're going to the prison gates, Anastas said, Pastor Jeff, are you okay? I said, Anastas, am I in any danger? Three words reveal the truth about me. He said, does it matter? You see, I'm all about the romance of serving Christ in the prisons of Rwanda, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. What is it that enable these people? Folks, do you know that the best thing about living in Africa was I had no money, and if I did, it wouldn't have done any good because there's nothing to buy. And there was no internet and email. There was no iPod, iPhone, iPad. At 4.30, there was no cable television, no VCRs. Oh, wait a minute, you won't even know what that is. No DVD players. And when the sun went down, I found myself reading my Bible or going back into the office and praying or reading something that would equip me. But I'm in trouble. Are you? 
I don't like what's happening to me. I'm distracted by affluence. I see everything and I want it just like you do. And the things, here's the interesting thing. When Anastas said to me, Pastor Jeff, your problem is you're distracted by affluence. Can I ask you something? Are you saturating your mind with the word of God? And then you wonder, and then I wonder why we're not having victory over the same temptations and the same sins and the same things are bringing us down. Do you know why? We're not in the word. We're not on our knees. We spend more time on Facebook than on our face before God. Are you distracted by affluence? You've got to stop. Or we'll never have the victory over the issues in our lives and we'll never have impact on the world. The battle is won long before the fight begins. These early Christians were able to do the right thing because the battle had already been won on their knees before God and they had the words of Christ in them so the Holy Spirit could activate the right word at the right time and give them the victory. Number two, are you distracted by affluence? And here's the big one. Now, this is one of those times when Pastor Jeff says, I really love you. I do. It's about to get hard, but I do love you. And that's why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Because the second question is this, am I living out grace? Okay. I know that you were saved by grace. I get that. And so do you. And grace means unmerited favor. I realize that too, which means that you did nothing whatsoever to place yourself in a right position for God to love you. You understand that? And for those of you who are skeptic and not unsure about this whole Christianity thing, let me tell you about this is the most beautiful thing about Christ. He loves you unconditionally and wants you to come home. And it's not because you're good and you don't straighten yourself out before you get there because you don't have the power to do that. This may surprise you, but there are sinners in this room. You're saved by grace. But I want you to notice who's persecuting the Christians in Acts chapter five, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. The high priest, the Sadducees, these are religious factions. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. The Christians aren't being punished by the secular world. It's the religious world. And do you know why? Because religious people struggle with grace because grace requires unworthiness and nobody likes to feel unworthy. Think about it. There are many of you right now, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I deserve to be. I'm good. I mean, you know, God saved me because I'm basically good. And there are a lot of religious, righteous people that believe only the righteous people should be allowed into the kingdom in the first place. You remember what we said happens in Romans 6? Paul gives us a beautiful theological picture in such simplicity. And that's the key of a good communicator, isn't it? Profound, deep truths and simple, simple communication. And Paul says, for you to be able to understand what's happening in your life as a believer, you've got to start seeing sin as a separate entity. Paul says the only way that sin can fulfill its evil desires is if you help him out a little bit. You've got to give the members of your body to the entity called sin. And Paul says, remember, it is not you and sin against God. It is you and God against this guy, sin. So you've got the power within you now because you came to the cross and there's Holy Spirit transformational power. You can actually say no to sin. Same thing happens uh, with your mouth. Now, as I've said on numerous occasions, uh, a good illustration here is a little heated discussion I may be in with my wife. And that's when sin comes in and starts asking both Robin and me if he can borrow our mouths. Now I've noticed just to be fair, that he usually speaks to her first. And so, and then, and then she will say, because she has loaned sin her mouth, she will say something like this. You know what? You're nothing like my dad. 
You can't fix anything, which is all true. Truth hurts. You can't fix anything. You're not responsible. You don't do the things my dad did. When are you going to be like my dad? That, that kind of thing. Now, she doesn't say it in those terms, but we, we men know how to translate, don't we? We know exactly what they mean. And at that point, sin, you can't trust him at all because he plays both sides. After she does that, sin will come to me and say, Pastor Jeff, well, you're not going to be outdone, are you? Let me borrow your mouth and we'll take care of this right now. And so I'll say something like this. Well, oh yeah, well, you're nothing like my mother. You don't cook like my mother and you're nothing like my old girlfriends. And so, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but that's sin. That's not me. That's the sin that's in me. And so what happens is, the Apostle Paul paints this picture and says, you have power now that you, you, you can tell the entity of sin in no uncertain terms that no, you cannot have my hands, my eyes, my nose, my mouth. You can't have anything. And through the power of the Spirit, he says, praise God, there is a way through Christ Jesus, our Lord, living in us. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, here's my question. If I really believe that, and that is the truth of God's word, can you help me? then how in heaven's name can I expect another person to change before they come in here? How can I expect only holy people to come to church? Because we've just said that the only way you'll ever have power to overcome sin is after you've been to the cross. So is it not fair to say that everyone should be welcomed in here? Everyone. And that no one should ever be turned away. And if you believe that, how deep and wide is grace really in our church? How deep and wide is it really? Because here's the problem. Here's the way most of us think. Here's the order of things. Hey, you behave, and then we'll let you in. And then you believe, and then we'll like you. And then after that, because you believe, the Holy Spirit will come on the inside and transform you and change you into the way we think you ought to be. Now, here is the biblical account. We're going to accept you and love you unconditionally. And hopefully because we love you and accept you, you're going to believe because you see our love for you. And after you believe, the power of God will come into you and you'll be able to behave. Amen. You see, it's accept, believe, then behave. But most of us live by you behave, you might believe, and then we may accept you. And my dream for this church is that the CEO and the homeless will be seated beside each other. My dream is that the prostitute and the domestic engineer will hold hands together in worship and that the addict and the athlete will be best friends. But you have to help me. How, Pastor Jeff, how can we help you? That when someone comes in that you think they're not appropriately dressed or they don't look the look or they smell a little weird, that you don't look at them and look like you've seen a ghost. That we would welcome everyone with outstretched arms. But Pastor Jeff, that seems risky to me. And what do I say to my child? Here's what you say. Here's what you say. Jesus ate with the sinners, so do we. Folks, you think about this just for a moment. If we're really the people of God, shouldn't we be looking for the marginalized? Shouldn't we be looking for those who've been abandoned by everybody else? Shouldn't we not be going in the most difficult parts of the valley to take the message of the gospel of hope and good news? Isn't that where we ought to be involved? Isn't that the call on our lives? Don't we have the power to reach them and the power to change to the Holy Spirit? but we want to avoid, we want affluence. We want easy church. We want easy life. And I can't do that anymore. And I want you to stop and think just for a moment. When you say it's risky, Jeff, who's going to come in here? It's dirty, Jeff. It's uncomfortable. And that's why I know it's right. Because when kingdom expansion is easy, comfortable, and pleasant, 
It is usually shallow, temporary, and will fold at the first sign of hardship. I had a young girl about two months ago look at me and say, Pastor Jeff, I'm struggling with my sexuality. And we talked. And after the talk, she said, can I still come while I'm sorting my issues? Yes. How can we possibly expect people to change before they get to the cross? Let's get them here and let them hear the good news of the gospel. Let's bring them to the cross. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit will do a lot better job of transformation than you and I ever could. And once he does, you start to experience changed lives. Let me tell you, you want revival? Nothing brings revival like about 300 changed lives every year. Number one, Am I distracted by affluence? Number two, am I living out grace? And number three, am I willing to suffer and sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Now, I want you to notice something again in that same passage. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Folks, let me tell you, you want revival to come? And this is where somebody says, but wait, Pastor Jeff, you just talked about grace. Don't worry, Pastor Jeff. If you don't see that kind of, of commitment and sacrifice in your life, here's what they say. Don't worry, you're saved by grace. Wait a second. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Do you see the difference? It's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Salvation is secure in grace but that still doesn't mean that my life is about disciplines, about sacrifice, about beating my body to make it come under submission of the power of the Spirit of God. Stay with me. Let me kind of bring this to an end here. You know the problem with me and probably the problem with most of us is when something bad happens in our life, you know, we lose something, we lose a job, maybe financial difficulty, or maybe we didn't get something that our heart has been yearning for for like ages and things don't turn out the way we thought they would, our first response tends to be this. God, why have you abandoned me? Not so with these Indian pastors. Not so with the early church. When something happened, you know what they did? They said, wow, I can't believe this. God considers me worthy enough to suffer for his name. And I know I don't like this, but I know God is going to do something great in me because of this. And his kingdom is going to be expanded. And because I live my life for a purpose greater than myself, then I'm ready to go. God, here I am. I am all yours. Do you know that Greek word translated worthy in Acts chapter 5, 41, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Beautiful Greek word, axios. Scholars gives them a lot of trouble. Because you trace it all the way back and its word meaning is the, is the idea of heavy weight. And when it's translated worthy, here's what the disciples are thinking. Man, God considered me that I could bear this heavy weight and not abandon my post and not abandon God, that I would stay right here and allow God to do his work in me so that his kingdom might be expanded on the earth. And do you know why they were like that? Because they were people of the cross and they knew more than anybody else with the imagery of Jesus hanging on the cross. Now hear me on this, that it is quite possible that you can be in the most devastating phase of your life, that you can be right in the middle of difficulty, feeling like the 
breath's been knocked out of you, feeling like that there's nowhere to go, feeling lost, feeling alone, feeling in the dark world, you can have all those emotions and still be in the very center of the will of God, the cross. When was Jesus most in the center of the will of his father, hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world? And God did something pretty cool out of that scenario. Rather than God up in heaven and you saying, God, I'm just not sure I can trust you anymore. Things are bad. I wonder if God says, well, I'm not sure I can trust you anymore. Because every time something gets bad, you run away and abandon your post. What God is looking for are people who will give it all on the line and say, here I am, do what you gotta do if the kingdom is gonna be expanded. Just quickly, look at Acts chapter five, verse 18. They arrested the apostles, put them in public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Now I wanna ask you a question and bring it to a close. Who shook the prison walls? You, don't be shy. God, good, you know. I knew you knew it, I knew you knew it. Who shook the prison walls? God. Now, if God had the power to shake the prison walls and get them out of prison, did he not also have the power to shut the doors and keep them out of prison? Which means it was the will of God that they go into prison and that God used this whole scenario to do something dramatic, to change the lives of the disciples, the church, and those around them. So my question to you is a simple one, and it's a penetrating one. Will you trust God when he doesn't shake the walls and ask you to remain in prison for a little while longer? You see what God wants now, don't you? You, you, wanna, you wanna walk and live in the way you say you believe? This, hey, this is hardcore stuff, man. In the words of uh, G. Campbell Morgan, great illustration, he reminds us that when we think of sacrilege, we often think of this definition, taking something that is sacred and using it in a profane fashion. But he said the alternative, if you flip it on its head, the adverse is also true. That sacrilege is taking something that means little or nothing to you and giving that to God. And I'm telling you this, that most of us, all of our lives, have been giving God whatever is left over of our time, of our talents, of our money, of our stuff. And I am so thankful that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't tithe his life, he gave it all. And he requires no less of you and me. You want revival to come, folks? Do you? I do. Then you've got to answer the question, am I distracted by affluence? Then stop it. Am I living out grace? Who do, you know to go, who do you need to go and see today? Today. And apologize for the way you've treated them. Who has God bring, been bringing across your path every day, every week at work, and you pass by thinking how unworthy they are? Well, so are you. And are you willing to lay it all on the line? and say, here I am, God, do in me what you want to do. And when our church gets to that point, revival will come and we'll change the world. Father, I wanna thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the manner in which you open our eyes to truths that have the potential to change. 
not only us as individuals, corporately as our church and mega corporately in the world. I would pray that if anything came across in this message that was condescending, I pray for forgiveness. I pray that there would be a way right now that our eyes would be open to this commonality that you require everything to give it all or don't give at all. That you own us. We've been bought with a price. And that if we've been distracted by affluence, that we would put those things in their proper order. Once again, that they would be blessings, but not idols or distractions. And I pray that we would extend grace to a hurting world, not only individually, but again, corporately as a church and would be the city on the hill that could not be hidden. And people would find that for which their heart desperately searches, love, grace, mercy, and power of a changed life. I pray that we would all be willing to lay it all on the line to see what you will do in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for that message from Pastor Jeff, the first in a series about Christian atheism. There may have been some challenges in there for you. Join us next time when Pastor Jeff's message will be all about our attitude of saying, my stuff is my stuff. That when you gave your life to Jesus, the power of the Spirit comes on the inside. And now you permeate the culture and you preserve the good and you bring life where there's disintegration. with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.